Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The Art of Walking, featuring John Faulkner, Ailsa Piper and Damon Young in conversation with Ashley Hay, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for um, sitting in the mud with us this afternoon. Um, My name's Ashley Hay. It is my very great pleasure to be welcoming three authors to the stage today, two of whom I think you're expecting and one that you might not have been. Um, We have John Faulkner, Damon Young and Ailsa Piper, who, as she puts it, is understudying for Cheryl Strayed on our panel today. Um, Cheryl was unable to travel to Australia. Uh, She found that out at the very last moment. And Ailsa, who usefully walks and is usefully here and is even more usefully articulate and delightful, (laughs) has very gallantly stepped into the breach. (laughs) I won't do my American accent for you. (laughs) I was going to ask her to wear a longer blonder wig, but anyway, we'll let it go. Um, So, we've done the housekeeping things. We're going to have a chat up here for about 40 minutes. I'm going to tell you a bit more about our panellists and I'm going to leave some time for questions at the end for you. After that, uh, there will be a book signing. Now, here is the trick. Damon has books that you can sign. Ailsa doesn't have a book here that you can sign because she wasn't on the panel until Tuesday night. (laughs) Um, But her book is still available and I'm going to talk a little bit about that as we go. And John keeps telling me that he's completely flummoxed about why he's on this panel anyway. (laughs) So he may be willing to sign things, but, you know, he may just be recovering from having to talk about... I'm just hoping you're going to explain why I'm here. (laughs) I think it will become pretty obvious. Um, so let's do this. I will start with uh, I'll start with John, so he can uh, he can know why he's here, and so can you. So Senator John Faulkner, familiar to you all, I would imagine, through 25 years as a Labor senator for New South Wales. When I was preparing for this event, I found a lovely quote from Gough Whitlam, who apparently described John as the best prime minister we never had, which I liked <laughs> a lot. So here's a thing um, that you may not know about John. John is a walker, yes, and I don't mean someone who likes a stroll. In the past dozen years, he estimates he would have missed walking on maybe five days, uh, and that's it. And during his walking life, he has also completed the Oxfam 100K Trail Walk Challenge. That means walking 100 kilometres without pause inside a particular time frame. It's an activity that was originally designed for military training for the Gurkhas. And John's personal best, he reckons, is about 20 hours. In fact, he's been anointed an Oxfam Trail legend and is allowed to wear a particular coloured jersey because he has completed this event 16 times. Which just proves I am mad, you see. We're coming to that. Confirmed everything my political (laughs) opponents have said about me. During this time, his team also raised more than $300,000. So he has now moved on to Coast Trek. Endurance treks designed not only to promote health and fitness, but also teamwork, mental and emotional toughness and fun, as Senator Faulkner himself put it when explaining the undertaking during a speech to the Senate. These walks also tend to run around the 100-kilometre mark um, and they currently operate in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland to raise money for the Fred Hollows Foundation. That is the kind of walking that John Faulkner does. Our second guest is Damon Young, possibly better known to you all as a philosopher, a researcher at the University of Melbourne and the author of nine books. And one of those books is How to Think About Exercise, which is what brings him to us today. Now, I have to confess, when I was um, preparing the panel, I was thinking back to the first time that I read this book. Um, and one of the things that Damon is talking about is, is all the sorts of things he's been known to get up to as exercise. And we're talking karate and boxing and climbing rock walls and hill sprints. And I wondered whether Damon was going to be the kind of person who might just find this whole walking thing a bit unchallenging. But then I remembered that he does also write about reverie and about the gentle art of not paying attention, which has always been something that I've liked 
in walking and about the joy of exercises like walking and jogging, partly for the discipline and the effort that are required to do them. At the beginning of How to Think About Exercise, he talks about um, Descartes' mind-body divide that tempts so many of us cerebral and often sedentary types into thinking that our bodies are less relevant to who we are than our minds, as if the flesh might be carved away from an otherwise pure mind, or as he puts it, as if the flesh could walk robotically without a psyche. And this dualism is false, he says, and it's one of the things that I'm looking forward to asking him to talk about today. I, I should say... I, so I write a log about the, the mind and the body together and the way our minds are always embedded in environments. And so because of that, I'd like to apologise for bringing Melbourne's weather <laughs> with me to Byron this morning because of my deep intimacy with uh, my locale. So mm. I'm very sorry. It's all Damon's fault. Someone tell Edwina Johnson. Um, so our third guest, Alsa Piper, who qualifies so admirably to replace a woman well known for an 1100 mile trek in America by having undertaken her own 1300 kilometre trek from the south to the north of Spain, which is about 500 kilometres longer than that more famous east-west Spanish Camino. Aha. Now, I could tell you that Alsa Piper is a writer, a director, a performer, but I most liked this note that I found on one of her biogs, which said, ask Alsa Piper what she does and she will answer simply, I'm a walker. In fact, she sees walking as vocational, as her vocation, and that's an idea that I'm looking forward to talking about as well. So in 2010, she undertook this walk, a sin walk, as she called it, inspired by a small fact she'd collected as she was adapting the Duchess of Malfi for Bell Shakespeare. In medieval times, you could pay someone to walk to a designated holy place carrying your sins, and on arrival, your sins would be absolved by their walk. It's like being a parent. Mm. No, so actually, <laughs> my sins didn't get absolved. Their sins That's right. got absolved. They so were sitting on their bums. She put out the word, I will walk off your sins, seven deadlies, a speciality. She had no shortage of offers and off she went. In, in, in 2012, her book, Sinning Through Spain, was published. Um, there have been other walks between now and then, but earlier this year she walked again, carrying herself this time, as it were, for several hundred kilometres through France. And this was her first walk as a widow. And the blogs that she wrote about that time are some of the most beautiful and moving pieces that I've read. And I'm looking forward to being able to talk with Elsa about that as well. She has a new book coming next year called The Attachment, which you'll need to come back and see her talk about in 2017. So I want to start by asking all of you now, I had this question planned for when we had Cheryl, but I'm going to stick with it to see if you've all suffered as much as she has. Cheryl runs through wild. I want to refer a little to her um, as we go, the idea of like setting a place for an absent friend. And she runs through wild keeping a tally of how many toenails she loses to this walk that she's doing which seemed dramatic to me. Um, I want to ask if any of you have ever had to give up toenails in the pursuit of great walks. Elsie, you've probably done, you know, the longest, most concertedly. Any casualties? I'm really disappointing. I did a panel with Cheryl and she sat there talking about all the pain she'd suffered and I regret to inform you that my body likes walking. I'm born to walk. So I have good feet. Um, I'm sort of a workhorse, so I like to shoulder a pack. And the other thing is, I had been walking all my life when I did my walk. I was over 50 when I did that big walk, and I'd always been walking. Cheryl, God love her, was a sort of a, you know, 25-year-old kid. And so it's, you know, she carried a crazy pack. Um, she wasn't at all track fit or match fit, so she suffered ridiculously. But look, I... I have high arches. I didn't get breasts, <laughs> but I got high arches. Um, I didn't get sort of great big eyes that can bat at you, but I got really, really solid shoulders. So, um, you know, I, I can't actually say that walking has ever been mean to me. It's only Toenails intact. Toenails are really... In fact, I would take my shoes off and show you my <laughs> feet because they're my best bit, but it's probably cold. John, have you sacrificed parts of yourself along the trails? Yeah, I've certainly lost a few toenails uh, along the way. but um, And, of course, uh, particularly with Oxfam-type walks, uh, trying to 
uh, madly walk 100 kilometres in the shortest amount of time, or blisters and toenails and these sorts of things are uh, pretty uh, commonplace. Uh, I take the view, by the way, that they're the easiest things to deal with, because really it's a matter of mind over body. I mean, I think long distance walking myself is about 80% um, mental and 20% physical. But the really extreme um, impacts of walking, which I've seen, one of my mates who I've done a few Oxfams uh, with uh, had um, significant chafing. Now, chafing's not been a problem that um, fortunately I can talk from personal experience <laughs> about. But um, looking at his uh, nether regions wouldn't be the most pleasant experience at the best of times. <laughs> After walking about, and it's a very, very courageous effort to, re when you think about it, to walk 50 of 100 kilometres as if you had got off um, uh, astride an extremely large uh, uh, pack horse or the like, and literally uh, walking with your uh, feet uh, about a metre of a apart for. Um, for 50k, so so, I've seen um, some real impacts that, and and at times it takes a lot of courage, I think, for people to to uh, get through these. I walked with one one guy in Melbourne who was um, uh, totally totally blind, um, and he had literally blood running mm -hmm. out of various parts of his uh, feet, and it, it requires um, a lot of courage. So. A few toenails and a couple of blisters. Neither here nor uh, there. Uh, I'm like Alison. It's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> Damon, <laughs> in the um, course of duty. Yeah. Um, look, I've had a few injuries from running, um, obviously, and hill sprints, um, but maybe we'll get to that later. Um, at the moment, I have a ripped cartilage in my left knee, so um, walking's not easy and I can't run. But actually, most of the the sort of injuries, wounds, fractures I've sustained through exercise have been kind of existential. So, I mean, it's been my ego that's fractured. <laughs> it's been my narcissism that's been punctured. Um, so, I mean, and in a good way. I mean, in a fruitful way. I mean, sort of coming up against the edges of yourself and realising how petty you are or how vain you are. Uh, that's a wonderful thing, and that's something you can't necessarily get just by sitting and thinking about it. So we are bodies, mm. and we have to exert ourselves bodily sometimes to enjoy these thoughts. Um, and so, you know, for example, rock climbing I talk about in How to Think About Exercise, and it just completely humiliated me, because I was someone like, check out my upper body strength, I'm just going to... Just, just using my enormous Hulk-like arms, I will scale this wall. And I'm just... My arms ended up just kind of swollen like sausages, <laughs> unable to... I had, like, Lego hands. Like, I couldn't close my hands. And I'm watching people who are, like, 50, 60 kilograms just spider up the wall like it's nothing. That, to me, was wonderfully humbling. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. It's, mm. it's, it's the intellectual and uh, existential fracturing that I find most interesting. John, when we were talking ahead of this session, you mentioned that you didn't tend to come across many other people as you walked around Lake Burley Griffin at one o'clock in the morning when you used to spend some time in Canberra. And I was no, which is a good thing when you think of some <laughs> of the people who are likely to do it. Oh, yes. But I was wondering, how did you discover that that kind of walking, nocturnal at its best and alone was a useful thing to do or a lovely thing to do? When did you start? Well, one of the elements of this eccentricity that I have, um, uh, which basically developed about you know, the age of uh, 50 and I'm, well, probably a bit before that and I'm well into my 60s now, so I've been doing it for quite a while, is trying to keep up, if I could, uh, set myself a goal of a minimum of 10 k's a day. If I couldn't reach that, well, a minimum then make sure I did do 10,000 steps a day and apart from going on a long distance plane flight these are things that uh, are possible but if you didn't get it the first day well jack it up and make sure you get it um, uh, the next day. Well the only way you could do it in Canberra um, uh, when the the Senate which had a habit of sitting into the wee <laughs> small hours of the morning and, and I never really went to the um, the the the, the 
Labor whip to say, oh, look, uh, everyone else can stay here, but I'm just going to go out for a walk. Do you mind giving me a pair? <laughs> so you waited till the parliament was up and um, off you went around Lake Burley Griffin, which was, I might say in the winter, bloody cold. Mm. Uh, but um, one thing for sure, there weren't very many people to block you on the track. There was, uh, <laughs> I was on my own. It's, a, it's one of the nicest things. It's just the, the sort of, um, you know, you're almost invisible from yourself. It's just that lovely time and space of walking at night. I think it's beautiful. Um, Elsa, the idea of your sin walk came from a piece of research for a particular project, um, a Duchess of Malfi, but you've always been a walker. Can you tell us a little bit about the very long treks that you do and also about what they mean for you in terms of someone who sees walking as their vocation? Um, you know, there's a big tradition of walking mystic mysticism and the desert is a place of walkers traditionally and in a lot of storytelling. I grew up in the desert in Western Australia. I was... Um, on a, my family were on a sheep station in very red desert country. So as a small blonde top with quite fine skin and all of that stuff, I used to just take off with the dog. I mean, very small. And I would walk out into the spinifex. And my mother used to say that uh, this dog would get all the beatings that she wanted to give to me because I would <laughs> just disappear into the red. Um, but what I learned from that was that, you know, I'd go out collecting flowers and walking and... I would always get found. My mother or my grandmother would always find me. So I never felt frightened about walking. You know, I never felt as a woman that there was anything dangerous. So to walk seemed to me like the most ordinary natural thing to do. And it's been my sanity. It's always been my sanity, living a life in the theatre, you know, working nights and weird hours and not knowing if you'll have work. Um, I just feel like... It was the one thing I could do every day. You know, I didn't have a place always to go to work. My husband was an actor, um, so we, would, we lived a kind of life of uncertainty. So walking was a thing I could do that I knew I could do quite well and that gave a shape to my days when often they didn't have a shape. So the long walks just were an extension of that. But they're also solitude, which mm. for me is vital. Um, and I don't like walking with other people. So you talk about walking at one o'clock in the morning in Canberra. Sounds and I wonderful. think, hey, that sounds quite interesting, actually. <laughs> like Billy Griffin. Um, so the long walks just sort of evolved. And I don't want to make light of them. People say sometimes I talk about them as though there's nothing to it. But, you know, if you walk non-stop on your own in a foreign country for six weeks for 30 to 40 kilometres every day, my body can cope with that. But, you know, the internal world of the spirit and the mind can take a bit of a battering. So I should say that because otherwise people say to me I tend to not own up. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an extension of the desert. And for me it's about going out of myself, really right out of myself, which I love. Mm. And there's that sense of a calling in a sense. That's the vocational thing as well of, yeah. of the compulsion yeah. in that way. Absolutely. And, of course, the more you do it, the more... You do it. it you do it. And the more... It's, it's slightly addictive. I mean, I know that sounds weird because you're stinking and you're, you know, kind of on your own, in your own space and everything. But, in fact, there's something that's also out of your own. It's out mm. of all the things that you can define yourself by and you're just this sort of space, walking through time, if mm. that makes sense. Thank you. Um, Damon, I say this as a creature who spends most days sitting in front of a screen and is really, really crap at remembering to stand up and move yep. whenever it is you're meant to stand up and move. So your book about exercise made a kind of provocative and inspirational kind of sense to me. Can you talk to us a bit about this awful mind-body split that so many of us try to get away with and why it is absolutely no good for the intellectual and creative stuff sure. that we put value on. Okay, so one of the things I noticed when I would tell people, you know, what I was doing in a day, my rituals of writing and reading, would be, you know, I'd tell them that I went for a run or I was doing some weights um, or I was doing some martial arts. And for many people there was a sense of surprise. Like, what is a philosopher doing, doing exercise? Um, and, and, of course, the assumption is that because philosophers think, and if your vocation is thinking, that therefore you are somehow a person of the spirit. 
You're not, you, you don't have any fleshy component. You exist ethereally. And the idea is that we've kind of, we often inherit this view of the world mm. that there is, um, there is mind and there is matter and there is sort of flesh and there is spirit. And you, you, you have to choose a side. So if you're a bookish, curious, um, artistic or intellectual person, there's something then a bit weird if you do weights or you, or you go for a run or, or you um, take up martial arts. Um, and I, th- I think sometimes exercise gets kind of annexed by a certain kind of human. Mm. It gets annexed by a certain kind of young male who embodies everything that is sometimes worst about the body. The violence, the braggadocio, the, the cruelty, the arrogance. And so a lot of people, for example, don't go to gyms. Why? Because they're full of people like this, saying <laughs> things like, feel the burn, push yourself past it. Um, and, you know, there's a contempt for the life of the mind there often. Gyms can be profoundly anti-intellectual places because these people have kind of exiled themselves from the life of the mind, just like others have exiled themselves from the life of the body. But, of course, we don't have bodies. We are bodies. We exist through the flesh and all our finest, most noble and ambitious intellectual projects happen through the flesh. And so I wanted to write how to think about exercise to explain how this exertion, this physicality, can have marvellous sort of intellectual and creative and intellectual benefits. Um, and sorry, existential benefits. So I talk about the, the virtues of martial arts, for example, like courage, um, or the virtues of rock climbing, like pride and humility. Mm. Um, I talk about the state of reverie you get when you walk. Um, so there's a state called transient hypofrontality. Okay? Now, I've called it runner's reverie or walker's reverie because that's a nicer way to put it. But transient hypofrontality is the state where normally we have our ideas, our emotions, our perceptions in nice, neat little categories, mentally speaking. But in this state, those categories fall away and a lot of our resources mentally are put towards motor activity and perception. Now, the end result of that is if you imagine your mind like one of those snow globes, you know, the little tourist globes full of liquid. Okay, transient hyperfrontality shakes the, the snow globe of your mind and allows all these ideas and values and perceptions that were previously kept apart in nice rigid little boxes, it allows them to mingle. So what happens is, you might be familiar with this, you've got a problem to solve. And you're going insane at your desk trying to solve this problem. And then you just say, oh, fuck this. And you go for a walk. Well, I do, because I'm filthy. Um, You go for a walk and you stop thinking about the problem. But meanwhile, you're getting into this state of reverie. And without thinking about it, the problem is solved. Mm. And that's because meanwhile, while you've let go of your kind of conscious calculative intellect... Uh, all these ideas have been mingling which previously were kept apart. So that, that, that's sort of an example to me of the huge creative benefits of just going for a walk. Now, there are other things like solitude which I can talk about, but I've already talked too mm. much. <laughs> I just... I love that thing of the... Um, there's a phrase the comedian Eddie Izzard describes himself as an action transvestite in one of his shows... And I would like you to market yourself from now on as the action philosopher. Action philosopher. I think nice. there's a whole niche that can open up around I just, that. I want to I add to that because action philosopher sounds kind of uncerebral. You could get a cape. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> and maybe boots. Yeah. Um, but I guess what really interests me is, look, look life is con- complicated and distracting and transient and we have to build rituals of reflection into our life. Whether that's reading or whether that's gardening or whether that's exercise, we need to give ourselves the opportunity to think um, and to to reflect and to meditate. Mm. And going for a walk is one way of doing that. You put yourself in a situation bodily where you will reflect. Mm. 
I want to jump from there to the possibly less reflective walks of the Oxfam trail walk and the Coast Trek, John. Yeah, well, frankly, if you think gyms are an anti-intellectual <laughs> place, try the Australian <laughs> Senate. <laughs> I know um, you also try to do one long overseas walk with a mate each year, which is, as you put it blithely, up to about 500k or so. And when we were um, emailing ahead of this, you it wrote to me and said, simply put, 16 Oxfam trail walks, every Sydney coast trek, lots of long-distance walking overseas must give you the message that I am completely bonkers. And I think that I replied that you were exactly the right kind of bonkers for our purposes today. But can you remember the first Oxfam walk or the first long walk that you did? What motivated that, that first undertaking? Yeah, I do, I do remember it because it's really the only walk that uh, our team's trained for. Right. Uh, and uh, I, we realised after the first one that um, the training, albeit important for that walk, um, and I suspect it was it, the weather in Sydney was something like the weather here in Byron Bay. And uh, it's, a, it's a very rugged track, really, from uh, to the, the Hawkesbury River and that area really from Hornsby uh, north to Brooklyn on the Hawkesbury River. It's pretty rugged uh, bushland and it's, it's pretty slow and treacherous in wet weather uh, like this. And there are uh, a, lot of, a lot of teams, the vast majority of teams lost competitors and there are many, many full teams of four uh, pulled out. And there's a little bit of sort of shade and Freud, I'd, I'd have to admit, is when a, 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 a a 50-odd or 60-odd-year-old such as myself, you know, just dressed in shorts and sneakers and ploughing along, walks past all these young, terrifically athletic 30-year-old guys with all the gear in the world, tights and so forth. And I remember that, that, that walk about 40 k's in. We walked past two guys who were, you know, had all the gear dressed to the nines there, and they were just crying by the side of the track. <laughs> And I thought to myself, God, I, even I'm in better shape than this. <laughs> and um, so we did a lot of training for that uh, first walk and, uh, uh, and came to the conclusion after it, of course, that, as I said, it's, it's largely a mind over matter mm. um, uh, thing. You know, you, you actually... I, I know that if I set out on a 100-kilometre walk, I can finish. Mm. I've finished lots of them. And that's my that that's the the mindset that I go in with, and and sometimes of course you do struggle, and you mm. you're slow, and things go wrong, and and uh, injuries and things occur. But um, generally, uh, you get there, and the purposes of doing it, well, it's a it's it is a good uh, all these walks, such you know the Coast Trek, the Oxfams, and we've done Oxfams in three Australian cities: Brisbane, Sydney, and and Melbourne. Uh, they're for good causes uh, and it's, uh, you know, I think personally beneficial and for someone of uh, my age and given my sedentary occupation and the like, it was, you know, very good for you know, my, um, my uh, health and personal well-being, I suspect, as well as having um, a range of other benefits. You also um, have walked with a guy called Ben Phillips and I think that you and he have racked up six or seven hundred kilometres of walks together. And given that Ben is blind, that means, as you describe it, that you're talking and he's listening every step of the way. Yeah, well, I'd much prefer that from him to be talking <laughs> and me to be listening, I can tell you. But while we've walked up, yeah, I think we've chalked up about seven Oxfams uh, or, and, and Coast Treks, long-distance walks with uh, Benny, who's, who's totally blind. I also walked with another guy and I mentioned... Um, uh, him before, a guy called Nick Gleeson, who on the Melbourne trail walk, it was an extraordinary effort just to finish because he's a bit older than Benny and uh, and uh, he was, you know, quite badly injured, but incredible courage to uh, get there. But, but yeah, um, Ben and I just have a um, uh, an understanding and uh, basically some of our communication is non-verbal, but um, it's an odd way of walking, I think, uh, the way that our system of me leading a blind guy walks. He walks directly behind me through mm -hmm. any difficult uh, sections, which is a bit unusual. Blind walkers tend to walk beside you, which we do on the more open areas. Um, but I talk. Um, 
you hope in the 100 kilometres you only muck up the your left and right um, <laughs> once, once or twice. Um, and, uh, and we're very, very careful, obviously, through very treacherous uh, parts. But r really, um, th there's, there's no other way of doing this and uh, the systems that we've adopted of me talking and him listening and he needs to follow what I'm saying and I need to be right about mm. where he puts uh, his feet, what the nature of the track is uh, and, uh, and so on uh, and so forth. And he's done really well to, all these guys have done well, Benny's done very well to, to finish all those walks and we've managed to get some of our times down and uh, at one point um, we set a, a world record for the, uh, for the fastest uh, 100 kilometre walk for a totally blind competitor, which is a great, um, great credit uh, to him. And so that was, was that something like 20, 28 hours? It I didn't think we did seem a little bit, long. might have done a little bit better than that, but we've had some slow ones. I mean, we, our, our first Melbourne Oxfam with Benny was 36 hours, and given that you've only got about four hours to go before the whole show, the, they pack up the tents and go home. That's um, that's pretty hard. It's pretty slow. But but on some occasions, the you know, particularly if it's difficult conditions, slippery underfoot, and the like, it, it's it's very treacherous, and you've mm. got to go slowly. And um, so finishing, uh, I think finishing is uh, a, a great uh, achievement, and we've managed that in a lot of Oxfam walks and a lot of uh, walks uh, for Coast Trek. Uh, in support of the Fred Hollows Foundation, and it's uh, it's not only a great credit to uh, to, to Benny, but other other uh, uh, other walkers who have uh, you know a range of disabilities who are undertaking um, these um, these uh, extraordinary uh, walks. Uh, I take my hat off to them. Mm. Um, also, we were talking before the panel, um, and both admiring Rebe Rebecca Solnit as one of the loveliest people who's thought about and written about writing. And she has a great quote which says that uh, she thinks that thought moves at roughly the same speed as our feet, about six kilometres an hour. I know you walk faster than that. Um, there's a line in Wild where Cheryl Strayed writes that um, being moving through the world at foot speed is a profoundly different way of moving through the world than our usual modes of travel. And I remember one scene in Sinning um, Through Spain where you go just briefly in a, a truck or a transit van and you talk about speed being a kind of intoxication after the, the pace that you'd been moving at for the weeks before that. Does it ring true for you, this link between sort of thinking and walking, inspiration and walking and the way those two things move in step with each other in a sense? Yeah, it rings very true, but also I, I suppose I'd like to talk more about feeling, if I, if you'll indulge me for a minute. Um, you know, I mean, I think we all know what it is to walk and to try to slow down, and we use those phrases a bit loosely. When I came back from another walk, not the one the book's about, but the first time I walked a Camino Road in Spain, I actually had... I'm not a tattoo-y sort of person, but I had a tattoo of a snail put just inside inside this finger. It's tiny. I can only see it when I'm typing or, interestingly, when I'm walking with poles, I can see that snail. It's terribly important to me to slow down because I've always gone too quickly at the world. And um, as Ash said, I, I'm still sort of negotiating what it is to be a widow. My husband died quite suddenly a couple of years ago and, um, you know, we think about slowing down and we think about these things, but they're all sort of coming to us from the brain because the brain has all the power. The brain tells us what the body's thinking. The brain, you know, the brain does all this stuff. And we're thinking, but who's doing the thinking? The thinking's the brain and it's telling us that that's the most important thing. I think, I think, <laughs> I feel that the most important thing is actually somewhere in the realm of the heart. Uh, and, you know, we have these expressions like we're brought to our knees. They come to us from a very long time ago. I, I mean, I think poetry is much more truthful than a lot of research. Poetry is the stuff that gets passed to us, like the stories from the Bible and the stories from Mesopotamia and you name it, you know, the ancient stories. They don't come from here. I think they come from here. We can't remember stories that come from here. 
We remember the stories that come from here. And when I walk, I'm brought to here and I'm brought to my knees. And I think... I feel like I'm walking a long-distance road at the moment and it's very solitary. And I think that the only thing that has allowed me to deal reasonably, reasonably graciously with grief through this period has been the resilience that I learned from years of walking. But, you know, that's not something I feel like I think about. It's, and, and I feel like I talk about walking very differently now to how I did when the book came out because... I feel like I'm walking grief at the moment and I'm really getting better at it. But if I hadn't done those long-distance walks all my life... And I've lost lots of people, but there's something different about someone you've been with every day for 27 years. I had to go back onto the road to work out whether I was still a person on my own... ..in my own skin without Peter. And so that's the walk you talked about, Ash. Mm. And... I did, it was only 300 k's, it was sort of a, a, a manageable walk for me. But I did it recently and there was a moment I remember where I just thought, I'm still a walker. Even though Pete's not at home and there's no true north to negotiate mm. where that person is, which is how I'd always been, there was a moment on the road where I thought, I'm still a walker. That's more important to me than being a writer or an actor or a... You know, um, and I caught myself as I arrived here and they had my name wrong on the sign that said Alyssa Peeper is going to talk <laughs> instead of Cheryl Strait. It was like, oh, you know, great. And then, and I was probably quite snippy, I think, with the lovely volunteer here. And then I remembered that actually, you know, I'm a walker. I'm not Alyssa Peeper. I'm not Elsa Piper. I'm not anything except a person who can do this really simple thing. And... Um, that's the bit of me I like the best. My feet are the bit that I like the best because they can get me across a road when my heart feels weak, you know. So it's simple, but it's, it's the stuff of being human, isn't it? Walking. <laughs> I don't you. think I answered your question, Ash. <laughs> I think, to be fair, I think that's okay. Um, I'm just going to let you sit for a minute. Um, and Damon, I would, wanted to talk to you. That there's a chapter in um, How We Think About Exercise on consistency and you've got this lovely section called How to Not Lose the Plot, which mm. is, uh, you know, encouraging in and of itself. But one of the people that you come back to uh, in the book is Haruki Murakami, who is a very famous novelist and a very famous runner of marathons. Yeah. And you use him to talk about... Our mistake of thinking about our life as these kind of discrete or spotlit moments against the need for unity, the need, um, the need of sort of bringing it all back together. And you talk about Murakami's marathons and how this movement helps to bring a kind of integrity or constancy to all the bits and pieces of life, how to maintain our own plot, yeah, in a sense. Absolutely. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, he, he says something very similar to what Alza just said, which is, well, I'm a runner mm. and I have to run. No, no one makes me run, but I run. And so he, he keeps up this rhythm in his life of always running. I mean, he runs ultra marathons, so we're talking 100 kilometres, sorry, 100 miles mm. or more sometimes. So a, a little practice run for him is 10 kilometres, 20 kilometres. I mean, he must weigh, I don't know, 25 kilos wet. I mean, it's just when I think of those lengths, all I can think of is my bulk forcing its way through my knees to the ground. Um, but, you know, he, he, he runs. Now, the idea there is, is not just that uh, some kind of weird pseudo-virtue is, you know, it's good to keep up good habits and, we, you know, we must be neat and, and precise and reliable. It's the idea that his identity is a kind of regular right of physical exertion. He must run. And when he runs, he acquires a void, he said. That's the transient hypofrontality mm. I was talking about. It's a state in which his self dissolves and thoughts and feelings, perceptions just come and go. Um, but there was research that showed that people who... Reg who this, they got two groups of university students, right? And one of them was regularly exercising and the other ones weren't. 
Now, what they found is that the ones who were exercising regularly started doing other things regularly too, like eating well regularly and brushing their teeth <laughs> regularly. And I thought, this tells you a lot about university <laughs> students and kind of um, university culture where these adults have to be reminded to brush their teeth, but never mind. The idea was that by engaging in these rich, these whole person rituals every day, a consistency of character was forming. And what I talk about is how we often have to maintain the plot of ourselves. Life fractures us, it rips us to pieces, it, it unselfs us sometimes in very painful ways. Exercise in this sense, is a way of not losing the plot. It's a way of keeping yourself together over the years, over the decades. And when I, th when I think of um, my marriage, for example, my wife and I walk together. That's all we do. We've always walked together um, before our children, with our children, and so on. And um, Ruth, a few years ago, was gravely ill. We're talking... Uh, transplant ill and um, we couldn't walk together and suddenly this ritual was gone and when you when your sense of self is bound up in that the the, the embodied rhythm together mm. your footfalls talking breathing smelling and suddenly that evaporated and I, I realized at that moment how much of myself was bound up in our regular walks and it's it was a, I thought I wouldn't have realised um, its immense richness until it had suddenly gone. Mm. And then, of course, when she was well, thankfully, one of the first things we did was to go for a walk mm. together. Mm. Um, we've got about ten minutes left. I'm going to ask one more question of our lovely panel and then let you all loose on them. Um, and the last question that I do want to put to whoever would, you know, of you would like to answer it is... I'm wondering whether part of the appeal of walking is that it's sort of like it can be as much a metaphor of a journey and all that it implies. Oh, okay. We've got 20 minutes. Sorry. We've I've just been... made time. We've just we done just, something we extraordinary just up here. When you go slowly and you walk, you get more time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll carry on. Um, we've, yes, we've, we've, we've done something with quantum physics. So, um, I'm wondering if part of the appeal of walking is that it's like the metaphor of the journey and all that that implies as much as the, the sort of actuality of where you're moving to and from. Is that something that rings true for any of you? I, yeah, I mean, yes, but it's, I wouldn't say it's the primary thing. Mm. The, the, it's for me, it, it sort of is the primary thing. I feel like walking is the metaphor for my whole life. It's really, you know, and the road is the metaphor for my life and the road is my life. It's really, it's a bit naff. I wish I had a better one. <laughs> I want a better <laughs> metaphor. God, could I have a better metaphor? Other people get really good ones. But I don't know. John, do you? I just do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, there's the politician, there's the yeah, actor, yeah, there's, there's the philosopher. philosopher. You got us. Yeah. <laughs> I should say, though, um, sometimes we talk about just metaphors. Mm. Things are just metaphors, like these tropes are just kind of silly things we fling over life. But metaphors are embodied, um, too. So when we talk about moving forward in life, it's only because we know what it is to move forward. When we talk about someone... Uh, our chances going up or feeling a bit down, that's only because we know what it is to struggle with gravity... So there are so many tropes we mm. have that are embedded in a physical life. But if so you were in politics, you'd become an expert in reverse perambulation like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's one of the attractions of walking, John, that it's walking forward to counter all the reversals. And no, don't, don't let's not forget the backflips. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole other form of physical exertion. Um, but I'm interested too, because part of the walks that you do, John, are about raising funds. And I'm, I'm wondering, what is it about laying down? What is some kind of a physical feat? What is it that draws people, instead of saying, I'm going to hand over a cheque to that incredibly worthy cause for that amount of money, to say, no, actually, what I want to do is find out if I can do... If I can walk 100 kilometres, if I can... Is, there, is the, the physical challenge linked somehow to the to the desire to do the good thing or is it people wanting to know what they can do 
Well, it probably is. I mean, I think I, I think that these sorts of uh, things are a, a good fundraising mechanism. But of course, um, the organisations involved, such as Oxfam and uh, Fred Hollows Foundation and Coastric and so on and a range of others, are smart enough to ensure that you put the sponsorship in before, before the war commences. So stiff if you don't get to the starting <laughs> line, you still get the dough, so that's terrific. It's um, it's it's what is, is it partly? I'll put this to both Damon and to Alistair as well. What is it about us that there is somewhere the desire clicks in to know what we can do that will take us further? Is it simply that we we suddenly start to set ourselves these challenges, or we want that sort of next extension? Is that what clicks in at some point? Um, well, I was just going to talk about because when I did the walk that my book was written about. I was actually paid to walk. It wasn't very good money. Um, but I had this thing that if I took on people's sins without payment, I would be a martyr. So there had to be payment, otherwise there wasn't an exchange. And martyrdom is not something to be encouraged in someone with my tendencies anyway. So um, I thought, okay, so... And, and the medieval structure was that in order to get this you know, redemption, the people had to pay you to carry sins. So there's sort of something there about the fundraising... Yeah, if you took on the sins of... of the Labor Party, you'd need a forklift <laughs> truck to <laughs> do the walk. <laughs> yeah, but they might have been stories that I might have been interested to hear, though. Um, there were some of the stories that I got given that were just stories that felt like my own, you know. Sin, the thing about sins is they're a bit pedestrian. But anyway, um, we all have the same ones. But... There's a thing about walking with the load of someone else, which is kind of what fundraising is. You're imagining yourself into the shoes of someone who needs something. I mean, if we were to walk for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, for instance, you know, part of that, at some point, you put yourself into the shoes of these other people. And, I mean, there is something lovely about that notion that we walk in the shoes of someone else, whether you're walking in the shoes of your wife or whether you're walking in the shoes of your partner that you help or the people for whom you're raising funds. I mean, I love that idea that we've often, you know, walkathons and those mm. things, as we used to call them, you know, as fundraising things, that what we're doing is we're being asked to walk in the shoes of someone else. And, you know, empathy is something we're all screaming for at the moment and I, I reckon we could do a whole lot worse, actually, than, you know, swap boots and walk in each other's shoes for a while. And that's what it seems to me some of the commonality is about here. It's about actually an act of empathy. It's an act of imagination. Mm. And I think, I think all walking is fundamentally an act of imagination because, you know, we're doing that thing in our lives of walking forward, but we know we're going to end. If we stop and think about it, we're all going to die. So every day is a walk into hope by the very action of putting a foot down and getting into the day, you mm. know. Damon, did you want to? Yeah, jump I was going to begin with death rather than ending <laughs> with it. I, I mean, that's you were asking what what pushes us to to exert ourselves, and and for me, it is quite literally um, death. It's mortality. It's the sense that we're here for a brief lightning flash, and in that flash, we have to look at what's around and ex explore the terrain. So, given that we are bodies, in that brief time, I want to see what I am. Mm. I want to see what I can do. I want to exert and, and push and leap and pirouette and kick and see where it takes me. And it, it's, it's often not even about winning, uh, not about dominating or conquest. It, it honestly is just a kind of... It's a whole person experiment in what it is to exist. Mm. I think we really are about ten minutes from the end this time, so I'm going to do one more last question, then ask you your turn, blah, blah, blah. We've been here before. Um, there is a lovely line in Cheryl Strade's Wild about trail magic, which she describes as the sort of unexpected things that stand out and the sweet things that stand out in stark relief to the challenges on the trail. And in one of the clips that you sent me through, John, um, there was a little interview with Ben Phillips, the blind walker who John leads... Um, and he was talking about the place where he was as being just beautiful. He was talking about listening to the birds and the smell of the bush. And he was sitting there. He looked absolutely exhausted. He was completely drenched. But he was obviously... It was like this little epiphanous moment right there at the end to kind of reward him all. And I wanted to ask each of you about if there have been any extraordinary moments, any epiphanous moments, the sort of points of beauty 
I guess, that might come along either at the hardest part of the trek or at the end of the hardest part of the trek that are the little kick or the little piece of punctuation somehow. Whoever would like to. Well, I just spoke go last, first. so someone else should speak. Because <laughs> I'm just. Otherwise, I'll just. Well, I don't know about epiphanous moments, but what what I enjoy about those um, uh, competitions, the trail walks and the, the like, is actually walking into a checkpoint where you can actually where, where you can literally tick off X number of uh, kilometres. But but there are. Uh, there's no doubt that um, I've had. Uh, some great experiences and seen some absolutely extraordinary places. And I suppose I would answer your question more broadly and say to you, I think, and I've thought for a very long time, the best way to see a place is to walk through mm. it. If you really want to see a place, walk through it. Don't drive through it. Don't catch a ferry or anything else. Actually walk through it. And uh, I really think that... Um, that uh, has a huge uh, has it would have a huge impact on anyone. You and in Ben's case, obviously he doesn't experience it through um, uh, through visual cues, but through um, uh, through uh, sound and smell uh, and the like. But it's the same. It's the same thing. He wouldn't have those experiences unless he'd actually walk through mm. uh, those areas. Thank you, Elsa. Mine is is not actually from one of my big walks. I think the most beautiful walking I do... I moved to Sydney um, about 15 months ago and partly that was because one of my oldest friends is there and 10 years ago he got an illness which put him in a wheelchair. And when I walk with Keith, pushing his chair, um, it's the most beautiful thing. Partly he's so glad to be outside in the air and I take that for granted. But I'm glad to be able to have a body that just can move enough to push his wheelchair. And I, that sounds really sanctimonious, I'm sorry, but if you could know what it is to look up at jacarandas when I'm pushing my oldest friend and to think this silly body is strong enough to do that, it's, it's the best. I mean, it's why I feel like I got my body strong from walking all my life is that I can take Keith through the streets of King's Cross to look at the jacarandas when they're in bloom, you know, and, and it's easy to forget that we, I talk about walking as something we can all do, but, you know, to watch, mm. to, to know I can do that, I guess it's like pushing a pram, but it's something when it's, yeah, mm. a grown-up. Mm. Um, look, I mean, there are lots of moments, and I, I talk about many of them in How to Think About Exercise, but I'll focus on one. Um, it's the middle of winter in Melbourne and the weather is like this, but colder. Um, and I'm sprinting up a hill and I'm sprinting up the hill and then I'm jogging back down and then I'm sprinting up the hill and then I'm jogging back down and I'm doing that 15 times uh, in the rain. You're crazy. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> and in fact, this is the thought I have. This is the thought I have is that this is absurd. This is mad. There is something <laughs> profoundly wrong with me. And in the same movement, I feel this joy. And I, I was thinking about this, and, and what's happening is this. I ask myself why I'm doing it. Where am I going? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing it for anything. I'm running for the sake of running. That's partly what's so wonderful about mm. exercise. You're walking for the sake of walking. And what, what is that? That's a glimpse of life. Because you live for the sake of living. You realise that life has value just because it is. And so that, that moment of joy as I get to the top of the hill and the nausea subsides <laughs> is life is worth living. And so this, this run is a glimpse of, of life that has value for, for no other sense that it is, mm. and that's it. I don't. You know, it's not about living for something else. It's not about KPIs or. I reckon money. you'd be like one of those little staffy dogs when they get let off the leash, <laughs> and you see them, and they've got those big smiles. Boing! You know, and I'm out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and it's it's interesting. Is that I don't know about Staffordshire. But what, there's one of the um, terriers that looks like Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> looks like Friedrich Nietzsche. They have the moustache. Uh, Airedale? Schnauzer. 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 I think I'm a schnauzer. 
Um, With I, a I, Damon, I've only just met you today, <laughs> and I just wanted to say I really love you because I, <laughs> I finally met someone who's a complete a bigger nut than I am. <laughs> Thank you. Someone finally said it. <laughs> oh, I would have you... said it earlier, don't worry. I just thought... I, <laughs> I He's just all... thought, just to be on the courteous side, I'd wait till the end of the <laughs> event. I'd like to say that, Thank actually, you. people used to say I was the mad one for walking with sins, but you two leave me for dead. You don't <laughs> rate against Damon. <laughs> in, the, in the green room, this man tried to tell me to take pills. <laughs> so I just... Just letting you know that. Healing. He was corrupting yeah, me uh, with I, some... I did. I tried to take... Suggest he might take some... Uh, New Zealand green mussels for New Zealand green we, mussels. Yeah, because I, for half an hour, I heard about his bloody ailments. <laughs> I thought, God, I've got to give him something to go with. <laughs> Three minutes and one description, but it seems a long time. <laughs> so we're now going to open for questions. You can also ask Senator John Faulkner for any medical advice yeah, you'd yes. like. He's very free with it. <laughs> and I'll just say, we've got a psychiatrist here. <laughs> Talk to Damon. Anyone? Anyone at all? Yep, there's someone down the front here and someone... If we go over there and then the gentleman in the front. Hello, Cheryl. Around the side to the uh, right. Actually, we haven't got Cheryl. We've got oh, Elsa. Sorry. Oh, no, sorry. It's all right. I'll, I'll answer Would you American like Cheryl? Accent. It's okay. We can, she can channel Cheryl if you like. <laughs> I was just wondering when you were doing your longest walk through Spain, top to toe, um, you were solo, Yes. And you sort of hinted that it was a struggle at times. What did you call upon? Did you have support networks to call? Did you have resources yourself? Tricks? Pure vulnerability? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, truthfully, I think the thing is, you know, one step in front of the other is all I can ever think about because I'm probably not terribly bright when I'm in pain. Um, So... Mostly I would just think about, can I please get myself to the next whatever that was? Um, But on the occasions when I got lost, that was, I suppose, the most challenging thing because I was on my own and I wasn't on one of those tracks that has a lot of markings on it. And I'm not great with a compass, although I would do my best. So, um, you know, the moments that were hardest were the moments when I actually felt like I didn't know where I was going. If you have some vague sense of where you're going, you know, I can can keep pushing. Um, And in those moments... I think the thing that I would go to was actually just take a breath and think about home and think about um, the people who I knew were worrying about me uh, and there were a lot of them and it's always the people you love that get you through anything I think and so I would just think you have to get there because they'll be worried about you. But you have to get there because someone will be panicking. You have to get there because you said to these people, you made a pact with these people that you'd carry your sins. And for me, um, my community of people that I love, uh, I think the only reason I'm here. So I, have, I just felt like I was responsible to them to get myself home in one piece. And, yeah, when I sat there thinking, where's the sun, <laughs> to get my bearings, um, <laughs> the sun felt like it was back home in Australia, you know, and... Somehow I'd kind of find somewhere to go. Mm. I should never do this. Like, I get lost in Melbourne. <laughs> and you know it's a grid. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I'll get you a Just compass. do not let me out there. <laughs> I'm There's trying a... not to, Damon. I'm <laughs> trying not to. There's a gentleman in the front row with a microphone. It should be on. It's on. Oh, uh, yes, I'd just like to ask the... Um, all the writers here, when they're walking, do you meditate or do you think? And what if you're thinking, what do you think? Uh, I start off thinking and then usually it stops and I get into that reverie I was talking about where, where just the thoughts and the feelings and the perceptions come and go. Um, sometimes I compose chapters, but often, no, I walk and I run for that void where not much is happening. Um, so it's partly a break from hard thinking, from that kind of philosophical work, but it's also an intensely creative state. And I would say quite literally that I have written or solved the problems of th- sort of 30 to 40% of, a, of my books walking. 
I have my best, most brilliant ideas when I'm walking. I mean, I'm a great writer when I'm walking. The problem is that by the time I get home, they've all gone. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, yeah. Um, but I do. I love the ideas I have when I'm walking. I just don't remember them. <laughs> I actually took my phone, my mobile phone, and I would record uh, thoughts while I was walking because I knew they'd just they'd be gone. So I... Yeah, I'd have it. I'd be sitting there, and, and people are just looking at me like, "Oh my god!" Obviously, John has spoken to those people, <laughs> and has has confer- he is indeed mad. He talks yeah. to himself as he walks. But if you're talking to a mobile phone, that's what we're all doing all the time. But these it's like days. this, you know. Oh, I'm kind of okay. What's he text? What well, in answer to your question, well, yes, I think and ponder as I walk along, just like I'm thinking and pondering on this stage at the moment. And it's best if I don't share with you <laughs> what I'm thinking and pondering. All right, I think we have come to the end of our hour of torturing John Faulkner on a panel about walking. Um, I would like you all now, please, before you rush off to the bookshop for anyone who can sign anything, to join me in thanking our three panellists, John Faulkner, Elsa Piper and Damon Young. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ash. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.